Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Like we start every week, I just want to pray for us uh, and and just remind us that the Spirit's leading is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. So I'm going to pray, and I want you to pray along with me and pray to yourself uh, that we just ask the Holy Spirit to be with us this morning, that we would be taught. We would not be critics, but we would be participants and worshipers. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are kind and good. We thank you that you love us, and that through your Son, you've given us the Holy Spirit, who is with us even now. We ask the Holy Spirit to be in our hearts and our minds today, that you would remove a spirit of critique, the mindset that says that we need to constantly measure everything that we consume, and instead you would invite us to participate this morning and listen to what you want to teach us. I ask that you also pray for me, that as I teach this morning, uh, you're able to hear what God wants me to say. Pray that to yourself. Yes, Lord, please use my voice this morning. Amen. When I was in college, many of my favorite days were game days. My time at Baylor was a short period in history when Baylor was actually really good at football. RG3 won the Heisman, and any game that we went to, there was a reasonable expectation that we would win. And notice that I said we would win. When I was at Baylor, I was really invested. If the Bears won a game, we won a game. I was all in. But I didn't start out that way. If you know me at all, I have to confess, I am not a fan of sports. I've never really enjoyed them. Growing up, I had asthma, and honestly, they just never really held my attention. But when I went to Baylor, I fell in with a group of guys that were all sports all the time. They were all, like, had had played sports growing up. They were very athletic. They were always going out to the fields and playing some sort of catch or football or ultimate frisbee. And they were very, very avid Baylor sports fans. They wanted to go to every single thing, and they dragged me along. So we went to tennis matches, we went to baseball games, we went to very, very many basketball games, which were dreadfully boring for me. But football was different. Walking into the stadium during a home game was electric. There was a tangible excitement in the air. When the team came onto the field, the energy was contagious. It was easy to become electrified by the cheering and the music and the noise. And even though I never really cared about football, my experience of home games kindled in me a desire to care, a desire to love the Baylor Bears. And my friends who were obsessed with sports, they were happy to help stoke that fire. I started learning about the players, learning about plays, learning the actual rules of the game, and was able to suddenly start paying attention to if our right tackle had had a good game and things like that. If we won, I was elated for days, If we lost, I was really bummed. I started to emotionally invest myself in how the Baylor Bears were doing, because I started to own it for myself. 
And even though my friends were talking about football throughout the week, they were forming me into the kind of Baylor Bears fan that they wanted me to be. What really made the difference was coming together on game days, drinking in the enthusiasm of the stadium, hearing the jubilation when we scored, and letting myself get caught up in the emotion of it all. When people yelled, I yelled. When people sang, I sang. I started to cheer along with everyone. And I understand that my experience is not unique, it's just late. Most sports fans develop a love for sports earlier on. Their parents take them to a game, or they play a sport for themselves, or they join a team and they build really strong bonds. Sports have a power to electrify us, these unified group activities where we come together and are bonded. They pull us together, we celebrate victory together, we mourn loss together, and we feel like we're part of something bigger. Music has the same kind of power. There's a reason that marching bands play at football games. Schools have particular songs, and students have chants and cheers, because music helps unify our energy, helps focus our attention. Music binds together everyone who's listening and who's participating. Think also about our national anthem. It's music and it's lyrics, they give a unified identity to our country and to our shared history. It reminds us of those who sacrificed their lives for us. It reminds us of the freedoms that we can exercise because of it, the freedom of religion, of speech, freedom to protest. And whether we sing along or place a hand over our heart or whatever we do, participation in the music of our national anthem binds us together as Americans. And music doesn't have this power by accident. Our creator knows how we work. He knows how we think. He knows how we feel. And he gave us music as a gift. He fashioned it to have this pulling and unifying power. Organized sound on a massive scale affects how we think and feel by his design. I was formed and cultivated into a loyal Baylor fan by a regular experience of singing and cheering and yelling in the stadium because God designed us to respond to that kind of experience of noise and emotion and music. God knew this when he picked a songwriter to become the king of Israel. David was a composer before he was a warrior. He played the lyre in the royal court before he wore the crown himself. When he was later anointed as king and he established his capital at Jerusalem, he employed musicians and songwriters to organize worship at the sanctuary and lead the people in regular praise. And this is how we got the book of Psalms. Today I'm going to talk about Psalm 100, if you want to turn there now. I'm going to talk about what the psalm tells us to do. I'm going to talk about what, God, what it says about God and how we can respond to this psalm as followers of Jesus. I want to say a few things about the book of Psalms. Psalms, psalm is just another word for a song. It comes from a Greek word that means to pluck at a lyre, and so the implication these are songs that have musical accompaniment. It's the longest book in the Bible, the book of Psalms, and it's really just a collection of songs. It has the most chapters and verses in the Bible, and it likely has the most authors in the Bible as well. Like I mentioned, the book of Psalms happened because David employed a bunch of musicians and songwriters to organize worship at the sanctuary. So even though David wrote about half of the Psalms, I normally hear the book of Psalms taught as if it was written by David, he only wrote about 74 or 75 of them. Another third of them are written anonymously. And then the remainder are written by people like Moses, or Solomon, or Asaph, or the sons of Korah. The book of Psalms was compiled over generations. Psalms were still being added and rearranged after the Jews came back from exile, over 400 years after David died. So this is the long book of Israel's history. 
Psalm 100 is one of the anonymous psalms. We don't know who wrote it or when it was written, but it was probably not David because it's not attributed to him. We could guess that it was likely written by one of these songwriter priests that David had employed. So, what does Psalm 100 tell us to do? The superscription at the top starts us off. It says it's a psalm of thanksgiving, or a psalm for thanksgiving, or a psalm for public acknowledgement. Four words in English, but there are only two words in Hebrew, mizmor, latoda. The first word, mizmor, strongly implies that the lyrics are going to be accompanied by musical instruments. Not all of the psalms are, but this one particularly is. The other word for Thanksgiving comes prepackaged with this impression of something that's communal that we do together. This is not a song for me to give thanks, it's a song for us to give thanks, to publicly acknowledge our gratitude together. Next, in verses 1 to 3, we get four commands. All of them are addressed in the plural. So in English, if I say go, you don't know if I'm talking to one person or multiple people. But in Hebrew, the word shape changes based on that. And so all of the commands in the psalm are addressed to a group of people. The first command that we get is, let the whole earth shout triumphantly to the Lord. Another translation says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, or shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. We're to shout triumphantly. We're to make a joyful noise. This word comes from a word that means something like a war cry, like a cheer when your team scores, or when you realize that you've won the game, that burst of sound and emotion that comes out of you. This is the same word that was used when the people of Israel circled Jericho, and it says that they were to shout to have the walls of Jericho fall down. When we shout, something in our hearts break, fall away, you're removed like the walls of Jericho. Self-protection and pride and fear of looking foolish go away when we raise our voices. When we choose to make joyful noise, instead of saying silent, we're choosing to be vulnerable. We're choosing to worship in a way that possibly looks foolish. But something more important is gripping us, and we're giving into it. The second command says to serve the Lord with gladness. That word serve is frequently translated as worship, but I like it when the versions say serve because there is an active uh, activity that is, that is denoted by this word. It's more than just what we do with our mouths, what we do to sing. We serve God, we worship him with what we do. When we go to work, or when we labor in our homes, or when we make our families uh, food, or when we're helping out others in the community, all of these things are things that can be done with a heart of service before God. We can be, do them with gladness, with delight, with gratitude to him which can overflow as joy. Serving the Lord with gladness brings bringing attention to him in the everyday work that we do. But this word also implies the stuff that's done in communal worship beyond just singing. For the people of Israel, that was offering sacrifices. That was abstaining from certain foods. That was setting aside specific days for festivals and for celebrating. For us, that means practicing the behaviors and rituals that Jesus established. Giving generously to the church and to the poor, taking care of one another's needs, forgiving one another, praying for our enemies, as well as baptizing followers of Jesus, and coming together at the Lord's table for communion. Fun fact, last, this last Thursday, September 15th, I was baptized right over there 20 years ago. 20-year anniversary. Just interesting milestone. Uh, practices like baptism at the Lord's table are as much acts of worship as are singing and giving generously. 
In them we come near to Jesus, and Jesus comes near to us, which leads to the next command. We're supposed to make a joyful noise to the Lord, do everything in service and out of service to him. And the psalmist says, come before him with joyful songs. You could also say, enter his presence with loud singing. Worship carries with it the idea that we're approaching God's presence. Today, we are saturated with a monotheistic worldview, so we don't really understand how revolutionary this idea is. So let's go back in time a little bit. When the Israelites were in Egypt, they were surrounded by the worship of many gods, Ra, Horus, Hathor, Sekhmet, Anubis. And we know from what Moses says that actually many of the Israelites were participating in the worship of these gods. They were bowing down to these idols, praying to them. In their experience of worship, they would have seen their gods only occasionally because the idols that represented the presence of God only occasionally would come out of the temple in a temple procession, in a festival, where they would take it to another temple, maybe to visit another god. But even then, it was within a box. It was usually carried on something that looked like a boat, and it was surrounded by a massive procession of people. And these people, you kind of barred the way to the god. But that was the closest you could ever get when they were traveling. When they were at home, in their temple, you were separated from you were separated from the god by what might be miles of distance. Egyptian temples were massive complexes. They had industry and economics going on on the outer edges, and then they had many, many walls and corridors and halls leading to the very center. There were four or five different ranks of priests, and each of them could only go so far into the temple. When you went through the different gates, you had to do certain rituals and sacrifices and prayers and spells. One scholar I read said that there were 118 different kinds of sacrifices. A priest may have to perform several of these at each of the gates and go through a dozen gates before they can get to the god. Eventually, the high priest, after gate and gate and hall and hall, would get to the holiest place where the idol was in a sort of cabinet that was special that only he was allowed to open. The direct presence of the god was separated from any normal person by hundreds and hundreds of yards, and hundreds of feet of stone behind walls in the dark. So why do I tell you all of that? Because the God of Israel decided to do something different. At first, he showed up in his presence on the top of Mount Sinai, but he was hidden by a dark cloud and a storm. Then he had Moses build him a sanctuary. And the sanctuary's format is very similar to that of Egyptian temples, but greatly condensed. Instead of many, many ranks of priests, there were only two, the high priest and other priests. Instead of 118 different kinds of sacrifice, there were five. Instead of separating himself from the people by endless stone walls and gates and corridors, there were three spaces, each of them separated by cloth and animal skins. The outer courtyard, then you had the tent with the first room, and then the holy of holies where the high priest could go. So any old Israelite who was walking around the outer courtyard could be within a dozen yards of the center of God's presence. It was nothing like they experienced in Egypt. The God of Israel is the God who comes close, who establishes a way of worship that we can get near to him. That's the kind of radical closeness that the presence of God continued when Solomon built the temple. So even though now these were separated by walls, there were many courts into which the people could come, and they had learned how close their God was. And that's where the descendants of the singers that David employed for hundreds of years spent time in those courts leading the people in public praise in psalms like Psalm 100. So by going into the tabernacle, into the temple, it became a reality to the people of Israel that they could enter the real presence of God. 
that could do as the psalm commands, to enter his presence with singing. So what were they to sing about? The fourth command tells us, acknowledge that the Lord is God. You could also translate this as know this, followed by a colon, giving the content of what the worship was supposed to look like. Here the psalmist moves into describing the character of God, the content of worship, because we don't worship just to make noise. We don't worship to work with gladness or to sing. We make joys, joyful noise to the Lord. We sing to the Lord. We enter his presence with singing. We serve the Lord with our gladness. And we acknowledge who he is. This fourth command reminds us to keep what we know about God in our minds. You can sing along without thinking about the words. You can say you are doing something in service to God and then never actually think about him while you do it. You can even shout without knowing what you're shouting about. When I was becoming educated as a football fan, there were many times that the audience suddenly would yell with excitement and I had no idea what was going on. So I would just yell along with them, I would just cheer along with them, and then I would turn to my friend and ask, what are we actually excited about? We can do the same thing in worship. We can sing words and we can say amen and we're not really paying attention and we can wonder, what are we actually singing about? Well, that's what the psalmist asks us to ask. What are we singing about? Why? Who is this God that we worship? And so before we turn to that, before we go to the rest of verse 3, I actually want to jump down to verse 4. It also lists four commands, also all in plural, addressing a group of people. And it says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. And I want you to notice the parallels with the first four. Enter his gates and his courts with thanksgiving and praise. Come before his presence with singing and make a joyful noise to him. Give thanks to him. Serve him with gladness, with delight, with gratitude. Bless his name. Acknowledge his character. Verse 4 changes up the words, but it's just repeating the same ideas. That we're being invited to come close, to worship, to make noise to our God and to draw our attention to him, and to be pulled into his presence with him. So let's go back to verse 3. It says, acknowledge that the Lord is God. The Lord is God, not anybody else. Yahweh is God. This echoes Israel's oldest creed. It's statement of faith. It's something the Jews would have recited three times a day during the time of Jesus. Jesus would have said this every day of his life. It's called the Shema. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You could also translate it, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. Here the psalm is echoing the Shema, saying, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh alone is the one that we worship. We're not to look to other gods. We're not to look to other things that could draw our religious affection. We look only to him. And what does it say about him? It says, he made us, and we are his, his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Some versions actually say, he made us, and not we ourselves. The difference is actually only one Hebrew letter, and it's pronounced the same, so it makes sense whether it'd be a little bit of a mix-up. But either way, the meaning is the same. He made us, we didn't do that. We belong to him, we're his people. We're the sheep of his pasture. He made us, and we belong to him, like sheep belong to a shepherd. But it's interesting, though, because when it says he made us, it could be talking about him as the creator, right? He's the author of all things. He created heaven and earth. He designed humanity to have a relationship with him. 
And so that's true of every person that sings it, all the earth that sings, he is the one who made us. But at the same time, this psalm might be talking more specifically about Israel. When it says, he made us and we belong to him, we're his people, it could be talking about what he did with the people of Israel. Because the people of Israel started out as a man named Abraham. God picked him, multiplied his descendants, and made him into a nation. Then he rescued that nation out of slavery in Egypt, and he established them as a new country, sent them into the land, and set them up with a new law. People were able to become part of God's family by being a part of Abraham's family. But at the same time, these words are true for us. Because even though we may not be part of Abraham's family genetically, we're part of it through Jesus. He picked one man, Jesus, to multiply followers, to make a new people for himself, to save them out of sin and death and slavery to the evil one. And then by rising from the dead, he delivered us to new life in the family of God. We belong to the good shepherd. He created us, he saves us, he sustains us, and he's coming back for us at the end. And that's who the psalmist wants us to look to. Even though the person who wrote this psalm didn't know who Jesus was, he was looking ahead, he was looking forward, and he was looking back to the God who delivered the people of Israel out of slavery. The psalmist continues extolling the the person of who God is in verse 5. It says, the Lord is good, and his faithful, faithful love endures forever, his faithfulness through all generations. That faithful love is that word hesed. We've mentioned it before. It's one of the most important words in the Old Testament because it is a word that we're constantly being told what it means, that this is God's defining characteristic, that he is faithful to us, he is loving to us, he keeps his end of the bargain even when we don't. He's loyal, he will always be generous and kind. And that's why it's really hard to translate that word, because it means loving kindness and faithfulness and loyal love and mercy. And that lasts through all generations, today and on forever. So, because he is good and he is enduringly faithful, how should we respond as Christians, as followers of Jesus? The first thing I think we should do is that we should give thanks. The psalm is a psalm of thanksgiving. It says, give thanks to him in verse 4. Serve the Lord with gladness, with delight, with gratitude. As follower of Jesus, followers of Jesus, we should practice gratitude. And just really practically, I think that there's a sort of an old practice of doing this, of just making the list of things to be thankful for. So I'd want to challenge you to do that this week. Try to make a list. A lot of people at Thanksgiving will go around the table and will share like one thing that they're thankful for. Well, one year my mom said, what if we do three rounds? So everybody say something they're thankful for and then go around a second time, and then go around a third time. And what was so fascinating is that the first time, everyone was kind of struggling to come up with something. I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for these mashed potatoes. The second time, they had to dig a little deeper. They had to think, oh, I'm thankful for something God did for me this year. Or I'm thankful for when one of my cousins was able to reestablish connection with her dad. Uh, and then the third round, everyone's basically just crying because they dug deep enough to really practice gratitude. It wasn't just an endless, uh, empty, this is the one thing that I'm thankful for this year. It was really a deep dig. I'm thankful for the way God has shown his love to me in this way or that way. And again, like half my family was crying. It was wonderful. Now, there was a year when I was challenged by a mentor to actually make a list of 100 things I was thankful for. 
and it was really, really hard. I got about 20 down, and then I was able to kind of make my way up to 30, and then getting to 40 was a struggle, 50 was a struggle, but then getting to 60 was easier, and 70, and 80, 90, 100, and by the time I got to 100, I had more things I wanted to write down, but it's like I was at the end of my piece of paper. And I don't think that you need to do the same thing. I mean, if you do, that'd be awesome. But I would just challenge you to maybe write down like 10, maybe like 20, and just see what comes to mind. Dig deeper than just the surface stuff. Ask God where you can really practice gratitude and see what comes out. I think it becomes easier the more we do it. A second way for us to respond as followers of Jesus is to sing. And that's something that we've done this morning. But I want to challenge you this week to bring it outside of Sunday morning. Pull up some worship music on Spotify or YouTube or however you find music and listen to something. Maybe pick one song this week that you're going to be alone and you're going to sing along to. You're going to think about what the words say. For some people, that's easy. They listen to music all the time. For other people, it might be a challenge. Maybe you don't actually regularly listen to music and you especially don't sing along. But I want to challenge you to sing along because we don't sing along because we feel like it. That's actually a, a, a kind of confusion that I think comes up a lot in American churches, that we sing because we're expressing some sort of emotion. A lot of songwriting is the expression of emotion. That's what we see all throughout the Psalms. But God tells us to sing not because we feel like it. We sing because he deserves it. We sing because he knows that when we engage in music, it will pull out our feelings of gratitude and of celebration and of mourning and of thankfulness. So I want to challenge you to find a song that you can maybe be alone, sing out loud to. Just see what that's like. Try to practice singing to Jesus. A third way for us to respond as followers of Jesus is to pay attention to his presence. God is everywhere, right? He's omnipresent. We believe that as an article of faith, that he's everywhere. And yet, the Bible, at the same time, will use language about God's presence as if it's not everywhere. It is, but then it's also in a special place, like on Mount Sinai, like in the tabernacle, like in this psalm where it says, enter into his gates with thanksgiving. The picture of the psalm is that his presence is in the temple. When you're not at the temple, you're not in his presence. So we might make a distinction between when God is omnipresent, he's everywhere, and when he's manifest, when we're told he's in this particular spot. And when you go to this particular spot, you will encounter him. Except that idea that it would be in a particular spot is challenged in the story of scripture, because the presence of God doesn't stay in the temple. It comes to us in the person of Jesus. He's born, he's alive, he is God, and so whenever somebody comes to Jesus, they're coming directly into the presence of God. The presence of God can now be touched. It's no longer separated by walls or any sacrifices or any curtain. You can just go upright and touch him. But Jesus said it wasn't even going to stop there. When he was talking to the woman at the well in John 4, it says, He said, An hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Paul echoes this when he says in Ephesians 2, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. What Jesus and Paul are saying is that the Holy Spirit, when he was poured out at Pentecost, when he came after Jesus ascended, he is our direct access to God. Through him we can immediately come into God's immediate presence, his manifest presence. Where is God? He's in the heart of every believer through the Holy Spirit. 
But it's not just the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, it says, mediates access to God the Father and to God the Son. When Jesus died and rose again, he paid for that for us. The letter to the Hebrews, the author puts it this way, and I just really like it. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. We can boldly approach the throne of God. And what's being pictured is, is the temple in heaven, the, the throne where God sits above all things. He's the creator and king of all things. And he's up there, and we have visions in the Bible of how awesome and mighty that is. And yet, the author of Hebrews says, through the Holy Spirit, because of what Jesus has done, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. We're not even crawling up on our face hoping that God has mercy. We can strut right in and say, God, I need your help right now. Uh, an example that I love of this is kind of the picture um, that was published where, uh, what was it, John F. Kennedy? He had a bunch of little kids, and so he would be meeting with the chiefs of staff and all these big, important people, and then his little kids would just run in. And he would stop everything, even though he's the president, he's the most important man, he's the leader of the free world, but he would stop everything to acknowledge his children. That's the kind of relationship we have with God. It doesn't always feel like that. It doesn't always feel like God is that near, but he can be through the Holy Spirit if we just turn our eyes to him. Because of what Jesus did, we have access to this heavenly temple. We can turn our attention toward him, and through the Spirit, we can experience the manifest presence of God, whether or not we feel it. Although, there are going to be times when you do feel it. We have access at any moment to his presence, and we can speak to him directly. We can be with him wherever we are. Think about if you're standing over a stove, cooking. If you are seated in your car driving. If you're sitting at your desk at work. If you're falling asleep in your bed at night. At every one of those moments, you have direct access to the throne of God in heaven. And this isn't just like a metaphor. This is literal. In the same sense that he literally has a throne, right? It's a spiritual reality. It's in heaven. It's a little bit kind of abstract and beyond. And yet at the same time, the supreme creator, king, ruler of the universe, you have direct access to. So I want you to, this week to try practicing the presence of God. That's a phrase that comes from a monk. His name is Brother Lawrence. He talked about practicing the presence. He would particularly talk about when he was peeling potatoes. He would sit there and he would think about, I am with God. God is with me right now. So even though God was always with him, he was turning his attention and his mind to it, and he was entering into that presence. So we're going to end today doing something that we normally do. We're going to end with a song. Um, but before we do that song, uh, I want us to do something together. And it might be a little weird, um, so you don't have to participate. I just would invite you to. I want all of us to close our eyes. I want all of us to turn our minds and our hearts and our attention to God. And I want us to try to use our imaginations to enter into the present that's, that is re really for us right now. So there's a place in your mind that if I tell you to think about your car, you can recall or see your car in your mind. Right, there's, you can see what color it is or what size it is, what make and model it is, maybe how many seats are there and who normally rides in it with you. Right, so that part of your mind where you imagine those sort of things. I want you to clear that off and I want, to th want you to think about an enormous room. It's bigger than this room, any room that you've ever been in. It has walls and columns that reach up higher than you can see. 
I want you to imagine torches and bowls of incense everywhere. This room is filled with people. It's filled with servants and messengers and soldiers guarding one big throne in the center. I want you to think about the throne. I want you to imagine the throne. Is it covered with gold? Is it covered with jewels? What's the most lavish thing you can imagine for the king of glory to sit on? And I want you to think about the king sitting there. I want you to think about him. He's brighter than any light you can imagine, brighter than the sun, but it doesn't hurt to look at him. He draws you in. He's beautiful. You know his shape. From his throne, he towers over the whole room. All of these important messengers and servants and courtiers and soldiers. But he nods and the crowd parts in front of you, making a way for you to walk straight up to him. And he's looking in your eyes and he's waiting to hear what you have to say. I want you to keep your eyes closed and I'm going to pray. And then the worship team is going to lead us in singing, but I want you to keep imagining the king on the throne as we sing together. I want you to enter into his presence, into that temple, because he wants to enter into our presence. He wants to be with us. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are kind and good. Thank you that through Jesus we have direct access to you. Thank you that the Holy Spirit lives with us, making that reality true for us and making that manifest presence something that we can sometimes feel, sometimes we can turn our attention to. So I ask that he would aid us now in doing that, that we can continue to see the king on the throne and that that would be something that stays with us throughout this week. We thank you for King Jesus and everything he's done for us. In his name we pray. Amen.